Hi, Leah. It's been quite a year, hasn't it? Am I the only one that's confused about everything that has been going on with COVID? Absolutely not. I think everybody has been confused by all the massive amount of data that we've been getting about the coronavirus pandemic. And hopefully we'll find out a little bit more today about how to clarify all this information. The Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Science Basement Podcast, a podcast for people who love all things science. I'm your host, Tomas. And I'm your co-host, Leah. And this is the first episode of a three-episode miniseries made with the Cochrane Organization, an international charitable organization with the aim of promoting evidence-informed health decision-making by producing top-quality systematic reviews, which have now become the gold standard for evidence-based information. They have an official collaboration with Wikipedia, the NIH, and the World Health Organization. Today, we'll be talking about COVID-19 and where we are after one year into the pandemic. To talk about this, we have with us Dr. John Levis, member of the Cochrane Editorial Board and the Cochrane Knowledge Translation Advisory Group, founder and director of the McMaster Health Forum. So, hi, John. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you very much for having me. Our pleasure. So, it's a we're a year into the pandemic, a year and a bit. What do we what do we know now? And we started from a John Snow state of knowing nothing or knowing very very little. What have we learned about um, this new virus? Well, I think we've learned uh, things at different speeds depending on the part of the pandemic response that we're talking about. So the network that I co-lead, COVIDEND, the COVID-19 Evidence Network to Support Decision-Making, talks about four categories of pandemic response. Um, one is public health measures. Uh, two is clinical management, both of COVID-19, but also of pandemic-related uh, conditions like mental health and substance use problems that have been made worse by the pandemic. Uh, third is health system arrangements, how we organize the system to prepare for surges of COVID cases. And the final is economic and social response. So um, protecting those who are, are vulnerable with income supports and other types of services. Um, so I think in the area of clinical management, it's really remarkable uh, how far we've come in terms of the number of, for example, drug treatments that have now been rigorously studied we have a much better sense about uh, which drug treatments work and which drug treatments don't appear to work. Uh, when it comes to public health measures, we've um, also come a long way, but they are harder to study than uh, things like prescription drugs. So uh, we have a much better sense of the virus being transmitted less through surfaces. Um, and initially, we thought there was a big focus on droplets. We now realize aerosols that are let off um, in more routine social interactions um, can play an important control. Uh, so we have a growing understanding of, of the how important masks are, physical distancing, a variety of public health measures. Um, and on the public health side, we also now have vaccines coming online. So we have a lot of uh, understanding of the efficacy of those vaccines um, in terms of their ability to do things like reduce the risk of someone ending up with a severe case of COVID. 
On the health system arrangement side, we've learned a fair bit about how to accommodate surges in COVID to prepare intensive care units and so on. Uh, we've made big advances in how we provide care through virtual visits uh, as opposed to face and to face encounters. Where the science has been less um, robustly developed would be in that final category of economic and social responses. So um, even though the pandemic's effects have really been quite severe on the economic and social front, we don't have uh, very many syntheses of the research evidence um, about economic and social responses that can help people. So long-winded answer, uh, the short version is we've learned a lot about some things, the easier to study things, and the more difficult to study things, we still have a fairly long way to go. So to synthesize a bit uh, all of that, what we, and especially kind of focusing a bit more on the medical side, maybe, mm -hmm. what would you say are three of the most important things that people should know in, in relation to COVID or in terms of uh, transmission and infection? So, you know, one thing to keep in mind with me is, is I, uh, my area that I focus on is synthesizing the science. So I know a lot yeah. about how to do that. Um, and I, but I don't always know the exact state of the science on every issue that might be in play. Um, so you have to take my uh, bottom line conclusions with a grain of salt. I can I can tell you within 15 minutes what the best synthesis in the world is on any given topic related to COVID-19, but I don't have them all in my head. But some of the things that we know are related to transmission that, as I mentioned before, aerosols and droplets play a very important role. Surfaces likely less so. Uh, that means that we need to be very attentive to masks to reduce the chance that we transmit the virus onto others if we are um, infected with the novel coronavirus. Uh, we have to be much more attentive to that uh, uh, two meter or six foot distance between one another because while the heavier droplets would not carry that far, aerosols can easily uh, be carried that far. And so heating, ventilation, air conditioning systems that enclose spaces can circulate aerosols also become important. So um, two meters or six feet is reasonable distance under normal circumstances. But if you were to enter into say a restaurant, depending on the nature of the air circulation, you could be encountering coronavirus circulating from someone across the room by virtue of the nature of how the air is circulating. So those are the types of things that, you know, we came to fairly early in the pandemic about the importance of masks, physical distancing, and so on, and they remain uh, critically important. A second thing that we've learned much more recently has been about the efficacy of the vaccines. I don't think many people would have predicted a year ago uh, that we would already be um, at the point where we had a number of vaccines in many countries, a large number of people uh, vaccinated um, and a supply pipeline that will allow some countries at least to reach very high proportions of their populations being vaccinated in a relatively short period of time. Um, there are, of course, uncertainties with the vaccine. So there have been cases of blood clots associated with one and now two uh, vaccines. Um, the second one is very new information, hot off the press. Uh, the incidence or the 
the rate of these uh, adverse effects happening is exceptionally low, uh, but nevertheless, it's always better to err on the side of caution and look very carefully when these types of things happen. But at the same time, um, you know, not uh, raise people's anxiety levels unduly. Um, so those of us who know the science on these vaccines will still very happily put our hand up to be vaccinated, even as we find out that there is this very, very low risk with one and perhaps two of the vaccines of having these blood clots. Uh, so we've come a long way with our knowledge of vaccines and how they can be effective against a range of outcomes, like the chance of getting a severe disease. The big question mark related to uh, vaccines right now is, uh, will we see the same types of um, efficacy when those vaccines are used in areas that have high rates of these variants of concern? So uh, in the early stages of the pandemic, we were largely dealing with the same virus across the world. Um, now we're encountering these variants of concern first reported um, in countries like the UK and Brazil. And it appears that some of those variants are more easily trans transmitted um, and people can have more severe infections depending on which of the variants it is. And we don't yet know whether the vaccines will be as efficacious um, or uh, effective in the real world against these variants. So vaccines would be a second area that we've learned an extraordinary amount. And then you asked for a third. So the traditional public health measures, vaccines. And then I guess the, you know, the third area, as I mentioned before, would be with the drug treatment. So there's a lot known now, and especially what drugs uh, don't work. So in the early days, uh, we had many, many people uh, saying certain types of drugs um, work against COVID-19, either to treat the condition or prevent someone from becoming infected. And there was a, a president of a, a country that we all know who is advocating a particular drug treatment, uh, actually as a prophylactic um, hydroxychloroquine. And, and the evidence um, seems you know, relatively clear now that that drug did not live up to those promises. So that is not a widely recommended drug treatment because the science has now clarified that it does not work in the way that it was originally suggested that it might. So we've learned a lot about public health measures. We've learned a lot about vaccines. Uh, and we've learned a lot about drug treatments, both what are the few that seem to really work and what are the great many that don't seem to have those uh, initially promised results. That's great. And it's really impressive how much has come up to your year, I guess. And I, I was just wondering, how do you make sense when you have, yeah, such an amount of data coming in, especially, for example, with, with vaccines, I guess, that you have multiple trials going on in different places and there are all these possible confounding factors. How do you make sense of, uh, of all this information? So maybe I'll answer the question in two ways. One is, is to get at the very particular issue you mentioned around confounding factors. Um, that's, uh, you know, an area where if you're studying something like drug treatments, it's easier to address because uh, with things like drug treatments, we can randomly allocate individuals to either receive the drug or to not receive the drug. And because those two possibilities are driven entirely by chance, 
the group of people who end up with the drug um, should be very similar, if not identical to those who don't receive the drug in all ways, except the fact that they receive the drug. So that means that you can be fairly confident that you don't need to worry about confounders. The group that got the drug wouldn't necessarily be any younger. They wouldn't necessarily be any healthier, uh, a variety of things that might influence the findings. Um, so when we have those kinds of randomized control trials where people are randomized to receive an intervention or a treatment or not, uh, we can have much greater confidence that um, the result is a true result and isn't reflective of some confounding factor like age or underlying health condition. But when we move into public health measures and health system arrangements and many of our economic and social responses, it is much harder to think about randomizing people because we are typically uh, intervening at the level of groups and populations as opposed to individuals. Uh, if we could randomly allocate countries to different types of pandemic response, uh, we would now know a great deal more about which uh, types of public health measures we should be emphasizing. Uh, but instead, what we have are countries chose a set of public health measures, other countries chose different ones, but there are so many potential confounding factors that might explain why some did well and some did poorly, that it's hard that now to come to a measured judgment about um, you know, which of these public health measures are more effective. But the, the main way that I want to answer your question is, is to get to the real challenge that we have in science when there are multiple people studying the same question, uh, we end up with a lot of noise in the system because for any given question, there may have been two teams or 10 teams or 20 teams. And in some cases, uh, many hundreds of teams studying the same uh, question. So in those circumstances, anytime there's uh, any possibility that there may even be more than one study on a topic, we ideally want to have a systematic review of those studies conducted. So a systematic review is when you, in a very systematic and transparent way, identify all the studies that address the same question, select those that meet explicit criteria. So for example, they all looked at the same public health measure or drug, um, appraise their quality because not all studies are, are designed well and executed well. And then they're synthesized in a very transparent way. Um, so then what you end up with ideally is a bottom line finding based on all of the studies that have addressed um, the same question. So that puts us then in a much stronger position. If all the studies point in the right direction, uh, in the same direction, then it's easy. But if some point in one direction, others point in another, if they weren't randomized trials and confounding factors may be important, we can start then to look at the differences and say, well, why did this set of um, studies have these findings and this set of studies find a different one? Um, and uh, so systematic reviews for us 
are where we should all be focusing our attention when we're trying to understand what does the science tell us on a very focused question. Uh, and maybe I'll just add to that by saying one of the things that has really taken off in the scientific world during COVID-19 has been the emergence of living systematic reviews. And I can use the term systematic review or evidence synthesis. Um, they're synonymous. So I could also say living evidence syntheses. And by living what we mean is that this, the people conducting the synthesis set it up with the intention of updating it every time there are new studies. So if you are a decision maker in government or in a hospital, or you're working as a frontline clinician, or even if you're a citizen wanting to know the state of the science, that's the ideal situation because every time there's a new study, the people uh, conducting the synthesis add that study alongside all the other ones they'd already synthesized. So you immediately get an updated sense of where the settled science is on a topic. And we've seen more and more of these living evidence syntheses come online in the COVID-19 era, uh, particularly for drug treatments. So we now have four groups in the world maintaining living evidence syntheses about drugs. So on any given day, if you say to me, what do we know about ivermectin? Um, I can quickly go to these four living evidence syntheses and see exactly uh, what the updated science says on the topic. So that is an incredible uh, innovation. And I think after the COVID uh, pandemic is uh, one day behind us, it's hard to imagine it will be, but uh, I live in optimism that that day will come in the not too distant future. I think living evidence syntheses will be one of the legacies um, that will come to realize how important it is that for the big questions of our time, we maintain living evidence syntheses so that as the science changes, you are constantly getting an updated synthesis of what all of the science on a particular question tell you. Yeah, this is really, really fascinating. Um, and these, uh, you know, gold standard uh, reviews that Cochrane uh, and the McMaster Health Forum uh, does are very well known, I think, for, I have a lot of, uh, let's say, doctor friends who use them a lot for medical, uh, deciding which kind of medical treatments to use, which are incredibly valuable for this. Um, and you mentioned a little already these living syntheses of what been what's changed during the COVID-19 pandemic, but has there other been other ways that the work that you do has changed during the pandemic due to the, you know, this need for really up-to-date information? So I think another way that things have changed is in how rapidly we conduct these reviews. Um, and, and I should just add that Cochrane, as you mentioned, conducts these gold standard reviews. And they, they're often, they're gold standard in the sense that they are so thorough in all stages of the process and, and really done to just an extraordinary standard. Uh, and I recall, you know, over the last decade that it, it, the routine answer when asked by a decision maker, say someone in government, how long does it take to do a Cochrane review? Uh, the answer would often be one to two years. And it, we all kind of got used to that answer because it seemed like, well, 
you know, these are big, complicated reviews. They often address very complex questions. It takes a lot of time to judge the quality of the studies. In the COVID era, one to two years just isn't possible. One to two months even wasn't acceptable. And even one to two weeks, um, in some people's view, wasn't acceptable. Um, so our group at the McMaster Health Forum, we don't conduct uh, Cochrane standard reviews, we draw on them um, and package them for decision makers. Um, so our rapid uh, evidence service that we provide to governments, uh, we say to them, we will provide you with the best science in timelines as short as four hours, typically in one to three business days. Uh, before COVID, the fastest we would ever package existing reviews for decision makers were three to 30 business days. But with COVID, the time pressures became much more intense and four hours to three days uh, became uh, the new accepted norm among the decision makers we have been dealing with. Um, so the great thing for us is that Cochrane exists because if they have taken, you know, a number of weeks or in some cases on very complex issues, even in the COVID era, a couple of months to complete a gold standard review, the moment it's out, if we're asked a question about that at the McMaster Health Forum and we go to Cochrane and find that review, you, we know that that is an incredibly robust answer to a very difficult question, and then we can present that uh, to decision makers. So coming back to your question about what else has changed, um, the rapidity with which we need to be able to synthesize evidence has changed dramatically. If you enter into an evidence synthesis process with the intention of it being a living evidence synthesis, um, your life is easier because you're set up to update it on a regular basis. But if you're starting from scratch with a new question, um, again, expectations have risen dramatically during COVID that the old answer of one to two years is not acceptable. Um, it, sometimes one to two months is not acceptable. So we've really been trying to provide syntheses in as short a turnaround time as possible. And I think that will probably be another legacy of COVID-19. It's astonishing that you can manage to do it in such a quick turnover. How do you deal with hype and all the and noise in in general? So, uh, you know, one of the reasons why we at the McMaster Health Forum and our peers in many countries are able to um, package evidence so quickly for decision makers is that um, through COVID and we are constantly searching for every evidence synthesis produced around the world related to COVID-19, and we are assessing them for their quality. Uh, we're documenting how recently the search was conducted. We're looking to see whether there was a great evidence profile produced that tells us whether how much certainty there is in the evidence that was synthesized. Um, so all of that is now sitting in a database, the COVID end inventory, and the best of them are profiled on the COVID end website. So we have, through that process, um, reduced the noise to signal ratio right now from around 6,800 evidence syntheses about COVID-19. But we have reduced that down to 411 evidence syntheses that address 
address all of the high priority questions about COVID-19 our, and are considered best in quotation marks according to those three criteria of high quality review, recent search, and availability of a great evidence profile that talks about the certainty of the evidence. So anytime a question comes in, we can immediately search the database. And very often, the question has already been asked and answered by a best evidence synthesis. So we can uh, present that back to the decision maker. Very often, decision makers ask us very complex questions, and we may need to profile 5, 10, 20, 40 um, evidence syntheses, but because they have already been processed and all of this information extracted about them, we can easily summarize that in a document and present it back. So I think by having invested in that infrastructure um, early on in the pandemic, it then has continued to service very well because um, when questions come in, we already have the evidence syntheses in hand uh, they've already been processed, so all the data that we need to present back to decision makers is there, and we can uh, focus on uh, packaging it and then getting it back to them in a form that hopefully they can use. So that's how we've tried to uh, address this noise-to-signal problem. Um, now, there is still a huge challenge with these new studies that come out every day. You know, pick your metaphor. I, I sometimes uh, talk about hubcap chasing. It's kind of like there's a virtual street and a preprint drives by um, and everybody runs out in the street and barks at it like dogs at the hubcaps of cars and kind of comments on it as it goes by. And then they retreat to their homes and then another uh, preprint comes by and everybody comes in and barks at it. Um, we just ignore that noise, to be very honest with you, because those preprints will end up in evidence syntheses. And I would much rather wait a week for them to get incorporated in a living evidence synthesis than to waste time by chasing after that most recent uh, preprint. Um, so that is a challenge in how the media covers science. The media is always looking for, um, you know, that, that nice car with the shiny hubcaps or another metaphor would be the shiny new penny. Um, and they want to cover that new stuff. But, you know, if you can wait a few days or a week, people will include that study alongside all the other ones on the topic. And there's a very good chance that that one that we all barked at uh, the, the penny we all chased towards uh, was not as high quality as other studies out there. And you only understand that when you put it alongside all the others with an evidence synthesis. So I often wish uh, we could just turn the temperature down with media coverage and have many more journalists paying attention to the release of evidence syntheses rather than the release of single studies. So that's my, my quick commentary on um, preprints. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Like, that's so something I was thinking also when you talked about this increased pace of the synthetic reviews that are now the norm and hopefully mm -hmm. will continue to be the norm. Like, you can easily imagine that 
somebody reads a, even outside of uh, outside of journalism, if an individual person reads uh, a paper on bioarchive um, mm-hmm. and and or any of these other preprint servers that has not mm-hmm. yet been peer reviewed and has some idea about it or even maybe you know is an unconventional science communicator and spreads it on on social media, back in the day it would be a year or two before a synthesized mm-hmm. review came out mm-hmm. and said, Absolutely. well this this is false this this doesn't isn't supported when we look at the wider picture. Do you think mm-hmm. that's really going to have an impact on this mis- has it had an impact on misinformation during the pandemic once you started ramping up these times and do you expect it to have an, an impact on misinformation in the future well i'd like to think that it it's having an impact like certainly i i see some very um you know high quality uh newspapers like the new york times um you know giving much greater attention to what the evidence syntheses are saying and are being less pulled by those uh single studies but it is always going to be a concern as individuals we're drawn to things that reaffirm our worldview right so if i'm skeptical about a vaccine and there's a study out there suggesting a very, very, very low risk of an adverse event like a blood clot, I'm going to seize on that and share it with my network. But what we are attracted to and what we share is probably better connected to what we already thought than than it is in any way connected to whether that is high quality science that is deserving of being paid attention to and shared with others. Um, and again, that's why if, if we can over time help people understand that it's just better in all respect, it's more efficient to look for a review because somebody else has already gone out and found every study on the topic, looked at its quality, synthesized it for you, laid it out. And if you disagree with some of the methodological choices they made along the way, they've done it, they presented it to you in a very transparent way. You could redo the analysis if you wanted to. So it, it saves you time. It reduces the chance that you make an error because you're basing it on the totality of the evidence, not what might be an outlier. Um, and it also um, increases the confidence that you can have about your findings. Uh, again, because if something is shown time and time again, in different studies, in different contexts conducted by different teams, you have a much greater amount of confidence. And and statistically, when you can quantitatively summarize the findings into, for example, an effect estimate, like this drug lowers your risk of a bad outcome by X percentage point. When you can statistically arrive at that final number, not only do you get a more precise number, but you get a narrower confidence interval. So the true answer is within a smaller range than it would have been before. So it's much more efficient. You're much more likely to get an accurate answer. You're much more more likely to have confidence in the answer you get. So there are a lot of reasons why we would uh, intuitively want to move in this direction. But as individuals, we're inevitably drawn to the things that match our worldview. And journalists are, you know, automatically drawn to uh, tension and contrast. So they're out there looking for differences and they don't find it as interesting to uh, look and find that there's actually settled judgment that all the evidence is suggesting this drug works or all the evidence is suggesting this drug doesn't work. That's not as sexy as new preprint showing, you know, this rare risk of harms. Um, 
because that generates more clicks. So the business model as well for um, you know newspapers and other publications is such that it's hard to uh, go down the path of this balanced reporting based on evidence syntheses rather than chasing those preprints. Um, up until now, we've mostly talked about the role of scientists in relation with uh, systematic reviews has been and how reviewers interact with um, governments. But mm -hmm. how do individuals fit into this whole thing? Do mm -hmm. Are these reviews easily accessible for day-to-day -day individuals? Mm -hmm. So great question. Um, I volunteer with Cochrane, you know, as a member of their editorial board and a member of their knowledge translation advisory group, but I'm not a paid staff. Um, so when I say positive things about it, I'd like to think that that is based on an unbiased assessment. They have often they have pioneered in many domains, and one of them is um, trying to improve the communication of evidence syntheses to the public. And they've done that in a number of ways. One is by making a very strong commitment to produce a plain language summary of every evidence synthesis that they produce. Um, so they have a, a very robust process that they follow to try to communicate in plain language um, what a particular review or synthesis did and what it found and what they think that it means for people's decision making. So plain language summaries is one really key innovation uh, that helps a lot with citizens being able to make sense of this science. Um, second thing that they've done uh, to help with language barriers is they translate these plain language summaries into a remarkable number of different languages. Um, so the full review might not be available in all these languages, but the plain language summary is. So that dramatically expands their reach um, because m most evidence syntheses um, are, uh, uh, can, are written in English. Uh, but if the plain language summary communicates all of the important things you need to know about that review, and that is translated into other languages, that helps a great deal. Um, third thing that they've done is they have a Cochrane Consumers Group um, that uh, fields uh, citizens or patients um, for review teams. So increasingly, um, citizens themselves are involved as members of these evidence synthesis teams. And that has a number of advantages. Um, it, it probably yields a more relevant question from the perspective of citizens. When reviewers have to make decisions like which outcomes should we focus on? So if we're looking at the um, effectiveness of a treatment, there might be a hundred outcomes that could be affected, but citizens can uh, speak to which ones are likely more important than them. So if you're someone who's lived with diabetes for 30 years and there's a new uh, treatment for diabetics, you probably know which of the many outcomes of diabetes matter most to you, and you can help the reviewers pick those outcome measures that matter. Um, and then they're involved also in the interpretation and write-up at the end, so they can help the review team understand how to communicate the findings in ways that are likely to be more understandable to citizens. So I think Cochrane has also innovated on that front. Where we continue to have a challenge in the scientific enterprise very generally is a lot of evidence syntheses sit behind paywalls. Um, so Cochrane has 
undertaken a number of steps um, to address this. So I believe that if you're based in a low middle income country, these reviews are not behind a paywall. Once the review has been in the public domain for a certain period of time, I think it's a year, um, they come out from behind the paywall. But there are, and there are many countries that have subscriptions to the Cochrane Library. So all citizens of that country get free access. But if you're in a country like Canada, high income country that has um, strangely chosen not to invest in a subscription to the Cochrane Library, then that new evidence synthesis that just came out a few weeks ago, you can read the plain language summary, you can read the scientific abstract, but you may not be able to access the full review without paying a fairly hefty charge. So that is a real barrier to access. And I know Cochrane, like a number of other similar organizations, is very committed to try to address this. The, the move to open access publications is meant to try to address this because the payment falls to the author. So I might have to pay $3,000 to have my paper published once it's accepted, but then I own the copyright and I can put it in the public domain and everyone can access it for free. Um, but many people would argue what that's doing is simply transferring the onus for payment onto the individual authors. And there are many authors around the world that don't have access to funds that would allow them to pay these publication fees. So to come back to your question on the citizen side, um, you know, plain language summaries are the place to go first. If English isn't your first language, folks like Cochrane spend a lot of energy uh, translating those. Um, if you want to get involved in producing uh, syntheses that are more relevant to citizens, you can get involved in organizations like Cochrane through their consumers network. And, and then finally, I think we all have to try to figure out ways how uh, to avoid the situation where high quality science is sitting behind paywalls and then can't be accessed by the people who actually need to be able to access it. That's really fascinating. So the bottom line you would say is that if someone is confused about something related to, in this case, COVID-19, but really anything that there's a, a systematic review of, the first place they should go is to look at these plain language uh, summaries of these systematic reviews. Yeah, exactly. fantastic. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And kind of relating it to COVID, like how I know that it's especially in the beginning, like the whole clinical situation was very messy with uh, people coming in and out of hospitals and uh, like everyone being a bit of a panic from the whole situation. How has Cochrane, um, have they just dealt it in the normal way of just trying to remove the ones that that don't meet these criteria how how has the noise from the pandemic from a clinical perspective affected these sort of trials and the analyses and the reviews that have come out of these trials uh, you know, I think Cochrane's methods, they could easily pivot to COVID topics. And I don't know that there was anything specific about them. I, from watching the organization, I would have said that the biggest challenge for them is how to compress the time involved in producing these very high standard reviews. So they did two things to address 
the this issue. One was they went through a prioritization process to make sure that the reviews that they did on a more compressed timeline were really the ones that mattered because to compress their timeline, they needed to put a lot of central editorial staff onto the job of working closely with the review teams to get the review completed and published on a short timeline. So they wanted to make sure if we're going to focus on, you know, 11 reviews in this period of time, we better make sure they're the right 11 reviews. So I think they did a a very good job of, of trying to have a rigorous process of prioritization. And then the second thing that they did, it wasn't any change that I'm aware of in their methods. It was a change in their allocation of staff. So in how Cochrane normally works is you have this distributed set of review groups across the globe. So at my home university, for example, there is a review group focused on the gut. So all of the things that can go wrong with your intestine and so on. So that group does reviews on that particular topic. So if I'm a Cochrane author in Nigeria, and I do reviews in that area, I would submit them to that group. That group would then, you know, give me feedback and so on. And at some point, they would deem it to be suitable for publication. But with COVID, I believe what happened was for these prioritized reviews, they took Cochrane's central editorial staff in the London office in the United Kingdom and allocated them to these teams wherever they were in the world for this much greater degree of support to allow them to move through all stages of the review process much more quickly. So that took a lot of staff time, but it yielded exceptionally high quality reviews in much, much shorter timelines than Cochrane had ever done before. So I think one thing, one of the things that the organization will need to think about in future is how does it balance this need for certain reviews to be done on short timelines and therefore the staffing requirements to go along with that versus others that can move at a more leisurely pace. And then the other uh, piece that Cochrane, like any organization involved in evidence synthesis, will need to be thinking about in future is how do we prioritize the syntheses that we will maintain as living? So it's not humanly possible to keep every evidence synthesis on the planet up to date. Um, So which are the ones that we're going to invest that energy in that every time a new study comes out, the uh, evidence synthesis gets updated. So that will be a challenge for the future. Well, I guess we could say that it would be fantastic if everything could be a living review. So get get funding to to keep those up because if the, 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 you know, the decision makers want the best evidence at Mm -hmm. the quickest time possible, then uh, investing more in this, in these resources is really important. Yeah. And, you know, we talked before about open access to publications, but if if we could also move to a world with more open access to data, that would also help us respond more dynamically because it could be for many topics, it, we don't maintain something as a living evidence synthesis. But if a question came in and I could go to the Cochrane Library and see that the review was last updated in, I don't know, September 2020. Um, but And I know studies have come out since then. But if I could just write to the author and say, 
are you planning to update? Are you updating this right now? If not, um, can I just like, I'm just going to click on this button on the Cochrane website, get the data that you had already extracted. And now I'll add additional data that I extract from the studies that have just come out. And now I will um, make this new review publicly available, acknowledging the original scientists' contributions and so on. But if, if we could move to that more open access to data, it would be much easier then for whoever had the motivation to update the review to build on all of the work that had been done and just incrementally add the new data from the studies that had been published since. So I know that's very hard because the people who did the original evidence synthesis put a lot of time and effort into it. And they all probably have this hope and they're crossing their fingers that one day they'll get back and they'll be able to update it. But if, if I'm under the gun, um, and have just a few days to respond to policymakers. Um, if 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 we're committed to help people make good decisions, the best the best solution in the long run would be that I could access that data, not just the publication, and then add the new data, and then quickly provide the update. Uh, so that's something else that ideally, over time, we need to be thinking about from an open science perspective. Yeah, that's that's really fantastic. Um, I think I read a quote recently, you know, that what what killed alchemy was not necessarily experimentation. It was openness, you know, yeah. people peeking in and saying, wait, you're, that that doesn't make any sense. You know, right. having other yep. people give. Yeah, so. absolutely. Absolutely. And um, swiftly changing a bit the, mm -hmm. the topic and but kind of still related to things to to come and uh, and I think you've hinted before at, at the main areas, but what questions do we still after a year into the pandemic have not answered? Well, I think that um, it's less about not answering them and it's more that the game has changed so profoundly over the last few weeks with variants of concern. That has really introduced an extraordinary amount of uncertainty into our the confidence about what we know and what we don't know. So, um, you know, the variants, uh, there's lots of unanswered questions about, you know, how much easier are the variants to pass on from one person to another? And then what are the implications of that for public health measures? So, um, you know, should we be using two masks? Should we be increasing the distance between ourselves from two meters to something more? Um, um, and similarly with vaccines. So we know the vaccines have remarkably high rates of efficacy against the original version of the coronavirus, but there are many unanswered questions now about how the vaccines will perform in the face of these variants of concern. Um, and three variants have gotten a lot of attention, but the longer that the coronavirus is circulating unchecked in many of our countries, including my own in Canada, um, the more variants will emerge and some of them will become variants of concern. Um, so I think the big thing that we're all struggling with is needing to go back now and, and better understand the transmission characteristics of these variants and the implications of those uh, new findings for public health measures and for things like health system arrangements, because we may need to set up our, our clinics and our hospitals different yet, yet differently again because of how the variants behave. 
Um, and then we need to be very attentive with our vaccine rollout plans to pivot if evidence emerges about some vaccines being more or less effective in the real world against the types of variants that are emerging. So I think there's no question that we have, you know, still unanswered questions from the original version of the coronavirus, but I would say much more attention right now is going to the questions related to what are the implications of variants for public health measures and health system arrangements, and what are, you know, where are we with the vaccines in relation to variants? So that would be what I would say is top, top, top of mind um, for uh, certainly all of the decision makers that we uh, interact with. A second type of question, which I think we now with variants emerging, we may have got to prematurely, but we had noticed before the concern level rose um, so much about variants, people were starting to ask the questions about um, lifting measures and um, moving into the recovery phase. So if you lift measures, do we know when and in what order they should be lifted? Is there any uh, evidence to help with that? Um, and the other thing is, how do we start to go back to normal with things that were affected by COVID? So many countries now have huge backlogs of surgery and other procedures. Uh, many patients didn't want to go and see uh, their physicians and so on um, for fear of contracting the coronavirus. So we likely have you know, lots of un untreated chronic conditions or not fully treated chronic conditions. We have lots of people suffering more from mental health and substance use problems. And in some countries, a huge problem with uh, opioids um, that has a problem that has gotten worse under the pandemic. So there's also a lot of attention uh, that has now been going to these issues of how do we uh, deal with all of the consequences of the pandemic as we come out of the worst phases of it. But I would say all of those issues that I just talked about have been kind of pushed aside a bit again, as we all focus so much on understanding whether and how the variants have changed the game uh, for everything that we've been doing up until this point, and whether and how they will change the game in terms of how we approach vaccine rollout. Of course. Thank you so much, John, for, for joining us and, and, and sharing us with us all that you know. Yeah, it's been great to have you here. And just maybe as a quick question before you go is, what do you see in the next, say, six months or how optimistic are you about the next uh, six months or a year, let's say? On the back of all of the things that you just said. On the, yeah, yeah, <laughs> on the, on the yeah. back of all the things that you've said, yes. <laughs> so... Uh... I, I guess I'm I'm cautiously optimistic that um, high-income countries will, um, you know, over the next six months achieve their vaccine rollout targets, and I just hope that that happens at a pace that it, the vaccine rollout will achieve the good outcomes that we all hope it will, um, and that it won't be the case that the variants have meant that we fail to reach the targets or that having reached the targets, we don't achieve the outcomes that we had hoped. Um, where I am more worried is the 
global inequities created because of how vaccine rollout has been undertaken in a way that has meant that the have countries, the the well-off countries, are way ahead of many of the low and middle income countries. So um, I think we have real challenges on that front because um, when there are parts of the world where variants are multiplying in number, um, that will create eventually problems for all of us unless we want to stay in a world where we do not travel again. But if we want to return to a world in which we can travel, we need to work very hard to make sure that our our colleagues um, in all countries have access to the same um, you know vaccines and the same commitment to get those vaccines to all who are willing to be vaccinated um, because now we all have a we always had a collective stake in in getting this under control but now with variants uh, we have an even greater stake because if chunks of the world are not getting the virus under control, then the risk to all of us of new variants emerging or these variants becoming uh, dominant uh, is greater. So generally, I'm optimistic, but I worry profoundly about equity concerns across countries. And then I guess the other thing is, um, I, I think that this has been such a disruptive force in everyone's lives that I hope that as we, if, well, when we start to return to normal, uh, we can build on the things that went well, and we can start to address some of the bigger challenges that have been, you know, brought to focus by the pandemic. So if I think on the evidence side, we've seen lots of amazing innovations, and I hope that we can accelerate the widespread use of those innovations, including things like living evidence syntheses. We've also seen some unfortunate things like the ongoing uh, duplication of effort uh, with many, many groups uh, addressing the same question. And I think we need to deal with that. And if we move beyond the evidence response and focus on the pandemic response, you know, we've seen a lot of things go well. So, you know, huge hugely successful um, vaccine discovery, scale up of production and so on. Again, who would have predicted a year ago that we'd be talking millions and millions of millions of doses in single countries already available, highly efficacious vaccines and so on. But on the downside, uh, the COVID pandemic has just exposed some of the most grievous inequities in our societies. So in countries like Canada, the burden has fallen disproportionately on racialized communities, on older people living in long-term care homes. Um, and so I think there will be quite a profound reckoning that um, probably can and should happen after COVID, where we need to be thinking about, you know, what kind of society do we want to live in? And how do we, again, build on the things that went well, uh, but tackle some of these underlying challenges that um, um, have just manifested themselves in such a devastating way in so many people's lives during the COVID era? Very well said. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for the conversation, John. This has been really fantastic and, and pleasure to speak with you. Thank you both for having me. It was really good to have the opportunity. I appreciate it and, and really great to have a chance to meet you and interact with you. Thank you. Um, and 
Yeah. Um, have a nice day. <laughs> Thanks very much. Okay. See you soon. Bye-bye. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. To our listeners, stay tuned for the next episode of this mini-series. It'll be on what are systematic reviews and how they're made with Fiona Stewart. For more information on COVID-19 or medical systematic reviews, visit Cochrane.org. If you liked this episode, give it a thumbs up and rate us on your podcasting app of your choice. Don't forget to share it with your friends. This episode was done together with the Cochrane Institute. For more information about them or to look at their systematic reviews, please visit www.cochrane.org. This episode was produced by The Science Basement, a science communication organization based in Helsinki, Finland. Interested in getting involved or being interviewed? Get in touch at podcast at thesciencebasement.org.